guys and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts Tiara and Jack for episode number 89. And before we get stuck into another Q&A, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them onto your Instagram stories. Also, if you are listening on iTunes, it would mean a lot if you could leave us a review. And finally, if you are interested in our coaching services, you can head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. You can just search that on Google or find it in our Instagram bios. And just a heads up, we do coach everyone, regardless of their health and fitness goals, not just physique competitors. Great. All right. So getting straight into this Q&A episode, got a lot of questions this week. So the first one we're going to start off with is if you could pick one type of sport not bodybuilding or powerlifting to plan nutrition for, what would it be? So Jack, if you could be anything but a bodybuilding dietitian or a powerlifting dietitian, what kind of dietitian would you be? So yeah, I was thinking about this question in advance and what I find interesting is that this might be controversial, but I think that the nutrition component for most other sports is probably more important than resistance training because you could fast prior to a resistance training or you could eat a like a, a like higher fat diet and i don't think it would affect you as much as something that is more aerobic slash anaerobic mm-hmm. sport like a team sport or sprinting stuff like that what what's your opinion on that yeah i understand where you're coming from there because obviously other sports are very performance orientated right like you need to perform on the day if you're a sprinter if you're a team sport athlete your performance has to be high right that's a Mm. top priority but sometimes yeah when it does come to resistance training obviously i'm still going to argue that performance is key and performance is still incredibly important because it's compound interest over time if you're constantly performing well you're putting more stress on your muscles you're more likely to induce more muscular hypertrophy over time and achieve your physique orientated goals but uh yeah it's probably not as oh it's really difficult because i'm definitely (laughs) yeah the only reason i say to like i think the more endurance based sports because like for, for lifting, you're there for, like, some people only spend an hour in the gym or less mm-hmm. than an hour, well, I mean, which is enough. But, like, they're very short bounce of, like, a, a set might go for a minute versus, like, you're on a soccer pitch for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you're doing those intermittent bounce of sprinting and then jogging in between that. Uh, you don't have that, like, five minutes of sitting down on a bench on your phone to recover. Yeah. That's kind of what I mean. And I think... Because, I mean, I, we both played team sports growing up and we, yeah. we know that imagine if we maxima- maximized our nutrition in those team sports. And because of that, I would probably pick a team sport like football or slash soccer because I've, I've experienced that before. Yeah, it's very demanding, isn't it, right? You have to perform then and there, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. And you're not necessarily guaranteed the same result, right? Because a team sport athlete, like I just said, it's demanding. You need to perform on the day, right? If you aren't up to scratch, you're not gonna score as many goals or you know, you're not gonna be able to run as fast. You're just not gonna be able to perform. You potentially can let yourself down then and there when the, you know, the spotlight is on you or you could potentially let your team down, right? If you're not mm. up to scratch. But 
if you're having an off day in the gym, you know, and like you normally shoulder press 25 kilograms, but you know, you're not feeling as strong and you might need to go down to 22.5 or 20 kilograms, right? Like, again, it's still about that RPE, that perception of effort. You're still putting a stimulus on your muscles in the long term. That's still probably going to help you grow. But like, there's not as much pressure on you then and there to be like, you must shoulder press 25 kilograms. Otherwise you're going to let yourself down and everyone else down. Right. So, Mm. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. And we always have to remember that there's, of course, a skill based aspect for Mm. it's not just like how fast you can run or how hard you can kick, which is, I guess, more associated with nutrition. Yeah. It's yeah. Like. We know that in hockey or basketball, mm-hmm. the skill is, is incredibly important. Yeah, so, and they've even done literature on that, right? To show that, you know, pre-workout nutrition or glycogen stores, it does influence, you know, how many baskets you score or, you know, how fast you can run or your endurance and things like that. Yeah, so I guess I've sort of answered. I would mm-hmm. probably do some sort of team-based sport I was familiar with, so more more than likely soccer or mm-hmm. That's the only team sport I'm familiar with. <laughs> I played AFL for a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've got that soccer build. You've got the legs. Yeah. Thank you. You've yeah. got the wheels. <laughs> what about you, though? I think that I would love to uh, work with an athlete that was probably both endurance but strength based. And it would be kind of cool to not necessarily have a weight class in there either, I think. Like, I know. Well, most athletes are endurance and strength based. Yeah. Because they do. They do resistance training. I guess so. Yeah, they still do resistance training, but I guess it doesn't necessarily matter, like necessarily how strong a soccer player would be or something like that. Like uh, the type of athlete I'd want to work with is like an elite level obstacle course racer, like someone who does like Spartan races, right? At the very world champion level. I think that would be so cool because obviously they need that endurance component. They need to be able to run. They need to be able to keep up their stamina to run between different obstacles. Cause you know, some Spartan races are like what a half marathon distance. So 21 kilometers or even they have like the marathon ones too. So it's a long distance, but you also need to be really freaking strong because you need to be able to, you know, pick up logs and pick up stones and like climb up ropes and stuff. So I think that would be really, really neat to be able to help an athlete on that level, uh, really with that skill acquisition and with that endurance, but also the strength. And yeah, obviously like it might be helpful for them if they did go through phases of potentially, uh, you know, losing some weight or gaining some weight, if that would help them from a performance aspect. But I think that would be really cool too. Mm. Yeah. I think we look, when we look at the performance benefit for these sorts of sports it's more so to do with the nutrition leading up to the the bout itself mm. which yeah is is something that is not as important again for new resistance training and something that i just thought of like i think a prime example of that is someone who loses like 15 kilos in a comp prep or something mm-hmm. but their strength is very similar yeah like their nutrition has been heavily compromised there like maybe potentially their energy intake has even been cut in half mm-hmm. yet they're still do- putting out similar numbers in the gym so yeah. that is a successful prep right when you yeah. can maintain strength and that's the whole goal of successfully going through a competition prep is you want to maximally retain lean mass while having very minimal amounts of body fat and yeah nutrition and exercise coincide with both of those but you have to implement certain strategies right mm. you have to be strategic you have to be smart 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I don't know. sure if you realized what I said that I, that's an example of why nutrition isn't as important for resistance training. Oh no, but that's what I'm saying. Like it is, of course, I'm still going to be very biased toward my sport and still very biased toward bodybuilding. But what I mean is it's more in a, it's more of a chronic time frame rather than that acute. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But something else I just want to add very finely is that, you know, being a coach, I love being a part of someone's journey and I actually love being there on show day or on game day. So it's very celebratory. So that's the thing, like taking a bodybuilder through a 20 plus week prep, right? And then actually seeing them showcase their hard work and celebrate up on stage. That's really, really cool from a coaching aspect. So if you were, you know, a dietitian for a soccer team, that would be really cool to see, you know, your players out on the field just like running laps literally around these other dudes because they have more stamina and they were taken better care of and their glycogen stores are full and things like that same for an obstacle course racer you know actually being there on the day like being in that atmosphere i think that's a really fun component of it as well like, mm. yeah like the last thing i'll say is because i don't want to get misconstrued that nutrition isn't important for bodybuilding mm. but potentially it it probably has a larger bias towards the nutrition when you're not in the gym as well for mm -hmm. bodybuilding because especially for a comp prep you need to lose a considerable amount of weight how you manipulate that on a daily basis whether you do uh, the same energy intake for each day versus high days low days refeeds diet breaks which probably isn't as complicated for other sports maybe mm -hmm. yeah i completely agree Cool. All right. Well, hopefully that answer was succinct. You know, we are coming up on 10 minutes as usual. First question in. So, uh, <laughs> all right. So next question is, this is a two part question. First thing it says, what are your workout splits at the moment? And how often should you change your workout split? So Jack, what's your current workout split? So mine's been the same for a long time other than when I was in COVID, but it's basically upper lower rest upper, lower, upper. So mm -hmm. three times upper body, which I, I kind of manipulate based on the session and then two lower sessions. Mm -hmm. So my upper, two of the upper body days will be quite similar. So just a, like a primary push, pull, push, pull, and then some accessory stuff. And then my two leg days will be a, a push and a quad based push emphasis, like a squat. And then the second one will be a pull emphasis, so an RDL. And then my final upper day will be when I'm when I could easily take a rest day that day because I'm pretty battered. So instead, I do a lot of accessory based stuff, which won't destroy my CNS any further. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, I start off with pull ups, and then I might do some uh, cuff chest fly, and then some like single arm lat pull down and some upright row things like that are still very beneficial for bodybuilding i can take to a high intensity without it being anywhere close to taking something like an rdl to a high intensity and will um benefit my physique mm -hmm. so you said so COVID aside right because you said you had to change that a bit during covid when we were training here at home but tying in with that second question so how often should you change your workout split so what are a few indicators that you should change it and Personally, why haven't you changed yours for quite a while? Yeah, so I think you should change your workout split depending on oh, this. There's a bunch of reasons, but I guess maybe the primary one is like schedule 
how your life circumstances change, mm -hmm. how much time you have. Um, do you need to focus on a, a more specific body part? Mm -hmm. Like for example, a men's physique competitor, well, I have a men's physique competitor right now and we started off with two leg days and then we transitioned into a single leg day. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna ch that changed the split quite a lot. And potentially the distribution of volume, wanting to change that. So there's a bunch of different reasons, but the reason why I haven't changed mine is one, it's been working really well. And also because my weak point for, for since I competed in 2018 has been my posterior, not my posterior chain, more so just my back in general, not really glutes and hamstrings, but so that that's been my, so doing three upper body sessions a week has allowed me to train my back development almost every session because I still hit it in my mm -hmm. leg days through pulling and it allows me to recover effectively still and I've been able to progress a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess almost thinking in like a pyramid scheme, right? So like, what are your big ticket items at the bottom, right? Yeah. Like commitment and adherence, right? And realism, like, can you realistically commit to this long term, right? That's the main thing. Because no matter how good something looks on paper, like if you're like, oh, cool, you know, training six days a week, that would be awesome, right? I could hit all my muscle groups, get in high frequency in there, get good quality volume in there. But then you're like, oh, shiz, like realistically, I can probably only make it to the gym four. Like, yeah. there you go, right? Your workout split needs to be scheduled around a four-day training split because you just can't commit to six. So, yeah, that's that's the one of the first things. And, yeah, definitely focusing, like, what are your main goals, right? How are you going to align your training with your physique goals and your performance-related goals? So really making sure that those two align. And then what are some other indications that you might, you know, change your training split per se do you think like you know if something might become stale you know or like perhaps you might even move gyms and maybe your new gym doesn't have a hack squat machine so you might have to swap out some exercises there yeah i would say it's it's quite rare for me and mm -hmm. for my clients to change a split but for me it's probably more so due to like quite a big change like wanting to focus on a muscle group more mm -hmm. or again if their adherence or schedule changes like those would be the main ones i don't like it's it's just so different to because you could your split could even the same stay the same but you might just rearrange the days yeah it's things like that so yeah i don't really have too much more else to add mm -hmm. what about you yeah so my current training split i currently train full body five days per week. And that has been something that's new to me for the past about three months, right? Uh, prior to that, for years, I was doing three lower body and two upper body, and that worked really well. But the reason why I personally changed over to five full body training days is because one, I just realized that I have really, really good recovery rates, right? Like growing up as an athlete my whole life, I've always been doing a lot of sport and high volumes and, you know, swimming. I was swimming like at a national level and I had to swim around 10 sessions a week, right? And an hour and a half per session. So used to that high volume of training. And it, I'm surprised almost it took me so long to actually put the two and two together. Like, whoa, if my main goal is overall full body physique development, right? Like I pretty much want to prioritize everything at this point. I'm 23 years old and I just need to grow, right? Like it so almost surprises me that I took so long to put those two and two together that 
whoa, I actually can recover, right? And I can actually get in really good quality volume. And like, I can do one exercise for each muscle group per session, and then just move on to another exercise for another muscle group and do that five days of the week. So that's something that I realized why I actually changed over to training full body five days per week. But at the same time, like, two upper and three lower that might and usually does align really well with a female athlete uh, because most females generally want to prioritize their lower body and you know training two upper body sessions per week that's usually sufficient too or you can train you know three upper body and three lower body if that again works in with your schedule and you can actually commit to that that usually aligns with your goals as well yeah, it's really just about what can you commit to, right? And, uh, you know, what really aligns with your physique goals. I remember when Jack and I first met, I was actually doing a push-pull leg split. And I was training, yeah, so like chest and triceps twice a week, back and biceps twice a week. And I was only training my legs twice. Mm. And Jack actually said to me, he's like, you know, you want to be a bikini athlete one day. Like, shouldn't you prioritize your legs a bit more? And I was just going off like bodybuilding.com and stuff. And I, Jack told me, he's like, you know, there's, there's females out there who train their legs, like, you know, three, four, sometimes five times a week. And I was like, Oh, that's crazy. Training legs more than twice. How do they recover? Right. But then I realized like, Whoa, actually maybe my training schedule right now does not align with my goals. And given that my legs are my weakest body part, why am I training my chest and my back and my biceps and triceps just as much as I'm training my legs? Didn't Mm. kind of make sense. So sometimes it's the obvious thing staring you right in the face and you just need someone to make a comment for it to point out like, whoa, like maybe what I'm doing doesn't actually make much sense long term. (laughs) Yeah, usually going back to basics is is the best way forward. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people just doing so much in the gym and... Like, I think just like, I remember when we first met as well, I was doing six days a week Mm -hmm. and then I scaled it back to five with probably similar volume though. And then I kept it to five and just continued to reduce volume Mm -hmm. since then and just get in better quality. Strength has improved since then, of course. Yeah. And yeah, like the stronger I get as well, like the, the more that impacts recovery. So I just got to, then like my my training block started going from like 12 weeks to 10 to eight and now they're at six Mm -hmm. and i even just did a three week four week block so it's um it's always changing and you gotta cater for that yeah absolutely and my best piece of advice guys is really just stay open-minded like regardless of your age regardless if you're you know 18 years old or if you're 35 years old like still stay open-minded to trying new things because there's like, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to cook an egg, right? There's so many different ways to do things. So even though something's working well, like even if you're a female athlete, right? Like myself for the past few years, and I'm like, you know, two upper body and three lower body sessions per week. Yes, that works really well. That gets results, but that doesn't mean that other things won't get results too. So yeah, definitely stay open-minded and, uh, don't get too bogged down in just these simplistic rules. Like I remember when we were going to university, you know, we were even given exams, right? Like I look back now and I'm like, man, so much has changed in the nutrition and exercise literature since then, because we sat exams where it was like multi-choice questions, right? It's like, if an athlete is seeking muscular hypertrophy, which rep range should they work in? You know, and it's like two to five, six to 12, 20 plus. And we're like, oh, hypertrophy, of course they 
should only work in six to 12 rep ranges, right? Now, a few years later, we're like, you can achieve hypertrophy in any rep Mm. range, man, right? I've even spoken to ex-physics who graduated the year we did and he or she, um, they, (laughs) they thought that like hypertrophy was purely like one minute rest. Yeah. And I, I didn't really want to explain Mm -hmm. myself because like he's an ex-phys. I was just a dietitian. Yeah. Well, I am a dietitian. (laughs) And even though I have extra qualifications on that, like he technically ex-phys's are above me Mm -hmm. in in the exercise realm. So I couldn't really say much, but each to their own. Yeah. Like I, I loved university, you know, we learned so much there, especially the nitty gritty fundamentals, but man, there's still so much to learn. Like, and if you want to keep evolving with your education as a practitioner, you need to stay on top of these things. You need to keep your ears open and you need to keep reading things and yeah, keep teaching yourself because things are always changing. You realize that it's not just black and white, you know, it's many shades of gray, right? Or it's every color of the rainbow, right? Mm. There's there's a lot of different things. So um, yeah, don't just like get bogged down with those like, you know, those specific rep ranges or, you know, if you're uh, seeking hypertrophy, you have to only rest for 60 seconds between each set sort of thing. Or the reason why I probably didn't train full body sooner than I am now is because even then we were taught, oh, you need to rest each muscle group for at least 48 hours before you train it again. Otherwise you won't be fully recovered. But like when you think about in the broad spectrum of things, you're like, but Hey, you know, there's athletes out there who are training twice per day. What about swimmers? You know, they're swimming twice per day. These are six to seven days of the week, right? Like they're still training the same muscle groups. They're getting great results right but it's just how you manage your recovery so yeah keep your mind open things are always changing (laughs) hopefully i know we got a bit skewed on that question but hopefully that was a comprehensive answer (laughs) so we'll move on to the next one which says any training recommendations for someone who is injury prone Mm, well i think that uh you'd be much better answering this question than me (laughs) so yeah i actually i get this one asked quite a lot to me individually which i think is is great because I'm I'm someone who I often say that I get injured and I had a major injury not a major but it was a very long-term injury with my back for like eight to ten months and that was complicated due to the psychological component which took longer to heal than the actual physical component and something that I see often is that people just try and like whack a band-aid over like a metaphorical band-aid over their injury or the or just saying okay i get injured a lot when sure some people again this is i'm not a physio but i'm speaking more from experience again but sure some people can get injured a lot due to their physiology or due to their potentially genetics um maybe they have like osteopenia which we they have weak bones and they're they're genuine reasons why they might get injured but like for someone like me, I don't have an excuse. I don't have some predetermined genetic condition as to why I'm getting injured. Mm-hmm. Like there's always a reason behind why I'm getting injured. And like I urge anyone who, who's getting injured frequently to actually figure that out. Mm-hmm. Like let's say you get sick regularly. You don't just say I'm getting sick regularly. I'll just take more medicine. Mm-hmm. You would go to a doctor and try and find out why you're getting sick. Mm-hmm. Or a dietitian, you know, yeah. <laughs> improve that gut microbiome, immune system. <laughs> and so I would, I would... I suggest you do the same thing with with your injury history as well. So I see a physio probably every four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And 
like let's say the most recent injury I had that was probably longish term was probably my hip and that that has translated into other issues as well which never really turned into injuries just little niggles but basically like my glutes are strong but my glute meds so my one of my abductor muscles was weak so that's basically the one of the you know everyone knows the abductor machine Mm -hmm. but it's basically those set of muscles so i basically needed other ways to target those muscles that would work it in different planes that would actually correlate to something like a squat or an rdl or a hip thrust because if you just do let's say a hack squat it doesn't mean you're suddenly going to activate the muscles you need to so that in my case it was just learning to strengthen those muscles and correlate them to a proper movement Mm -hmm. and then that basically helped me stay more injury free so that's just an example of basically seeking additional help to to work on those injuries and not 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 just modifying your training to not get injured because anyone let's say you have lower back pain you could easily just cut out squats deadlifts rdls mm-hmm. hip thrusts um any barbell rowing as well t-bar yeah. row and sure you might not get any back symptoms but that's not actually trying to fix the issue itself it's kind of just again putting a band-aid yeah. over it it's like you, you you need to be able to work around the problem you know it's yeah. like being scared that you're gonna fall over and trip so you're like oh i'll, ne- I'll just never walk again mm. it's like um <laughs> you know that's not that's not really a realistic solution here <laughs> yeah and like any anyone who comes to me for training and they say okay I, I can't do this exercise or i've been excluding this because of that i make sure to ask them a lot about it and get their history in terms of who have they seen have Mm -hmm. they seen anyone at all or are they just excluding those movements and I can if I'd gone down to a different path I can definitely see myself like still excluding those exercises because I'm just scared of them Mm -hmm. even though if you actually tried them for a bit they might not bring on pain but it's more than just that fear factor of I don't want to get injured again. Yeah, exactly. And it really gives merit to the type of practitioner that you're working with as well, because even, you know, in our field, you know, allied health professionals, right? Like people are still specialists. Okay. Mm. So like if you want, if you are a bodybuilder or a power lifter and you potentially have a niggle that you think is manifesting into an injury, go and speak to a physiotherapist that specializes with working with athletes, right? Don't just get a referral to go see like a hospital physiotherapist (laughs) or something, because you're going to get two very, very different answers. Just Mm. like with any allied health professional, you know, if you want the best advice on bodybuilding nutrition, go to a bodybuilding dietitian. just saying, all right, don't go and book in a, a consultation with just your average dietitian down the street because our skill sets are very different and it goes both ways, right? Everyone specializes in a certain Mm. area. So Jack and I, even as dietitians, right? We have actually, you know, referred on clients to other dietitians who actually specialize in certain areas, you know, of gut health, of, you know, uh, kidney health, just examples there, but you can see what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It can be tough to find that person. So I would recommend anyone who is interested in this, listen to our episode with uh, Scott, the Mm -hmm. physiotherapist, and he's the head of, he founded uh, Effectus Physio. He's a physio IC. And that's just one example. Like it may even mean that you you book in via telehealth and you have a video call, Mm -hmm. which isn't probably, I'm guessing isn't as ideal for physio compared to dietetics. But if it, I would do that in a heartbeat if it meant I could see the right person. 
Yeah, I'm so glad that, you know, you treat it as a top priority and you have people like that in your corner because, you know, it's definitely helping you excel and Mm -hmm. uh, stay injury free when you get those niggles and that they don't manifest into injuries. But the thing that I really just want to point on finally is that if you do feel a niggle coming on, right, like you don't always have to feel obliged to push through it, okay? Like if something happens at the beginning of your training session and you genuinely start to feel pain, right, or you start to feel some sort of strain, like don't feel obliged to have to push through that training session because you know in the long term, right, you're actually going to be able to get back to proper training sooner than let's say that you were doing a squat, right? at the beginning of a training session and you felt you just felt some sort of strain in your quad and it just kept hurting right and you kept trying to push through it and after squats you know you did something like lunges and then you did some leg extension and you kept feeling this pain and then what was originally a niggle manifested into an injury and rather than just taking one or a few training sessions off you actually end up having to go through a bunch of rehab over a number of Mm. weeks right like just think about it in think about it long term, right? And uh, yeah, because I get you know messages from my clients sometimes, and luckily they are really responsible most of the time, you know. And they're like, Tiara, you might see you know on the training program only half of it was done because I started to experience some pain here. It was feeling really uncomfortable, so you know I just cut it back and uh, you know just finished my steps for the day. Just wanted to let you know, and I'm like thank you so much for doing that right and like obviously keep me updated with how you're feeling if you keep feeling pain let's book in a session with a physio those sort of Mm. things rather than someone who's like you know i felt some pain in my lower back but i just you know i maxed out on my deadlifts anyway and finished the session but like now i've got two heat packs and i can't even walk it's like Mm. no (laughs) yeah it's pain is interesting and it's it's definitely something that i've struggled with probably in the opposite sense as you're saying, like I will have, and I'm hesitant to say this because Tierra is in like, like hypothetically 99% of the time she's right. But for like me coming back from an injury, I was just so scared to do an RDL or do a mm. squat because any sort of pain there, like I, I went, I, I got scared. And that was one of the hardest parts of reintroducing lifts. Mm. And basically it was, I had to just get used to experiencing some pain. And like when you're rehabbing injury, there might be some pain associated mm-hmm. that with that, but it's about like the degree of pain and the severity of it yeah. and so on. And of course, I've never been in a situation like that before. So of course it's hard to speak to that, but I guess it just is a skill, of course, on your part and on everyone's part, right? When you are rehabbing from an injury and you're starting to reintroduce exercises, it's really a skill of being able to differentiate between normal discomfort and I don't even necessarily want to use the word pain. You know, people are like, oh, my squats are really painful, right? But like, it does, that doesn't necessarily imply that they are actually injuring themselves mm. during the squat. Just, they're just, they're just, just tough, man. Squats are tough. A lot of things when you're lifting weights, right? And you're trying to physiologically change yourself and cause a response and you're stressing your body out. Yeah, you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you don't necessarily have to be in serious pain, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's probably, it's certainly a skill psychologically being able to differentiate between those things. Yeah. I agree. And that's where having someone in your corner to really spell it out for you, that's really beneficial for me. Like I always ask questions and say, okay, if I was uncertain, I would say, how much pain should I, is realistic for me to experience? 
like should I continue pushing even if there is pain Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff and I think we're by by no means experts on this topic and I would like to get uh, Scott on the podcast Mm -hmm. again because yeah there's so many of these types of questions he would just be much more suited to answer so yeah definitely (laughs) all right so we will move on now to our final question so this one says should i eat back the calories that it says i've burnt on my fitness pal Mm -hmm. so yes this is this can be applied to other activity trackers like fitbit apple watch garmin Mm -hmm. whatever it may be and ultimately the short answer is no Mm -hmm. There are, I, a few of my clients use the activity trackers. They can be, they are consistent means of like seeing how much activity you've done. Mm-hmm. The number itself is, is more just a gauge of how close you, how consistent you are each day, mm-hmm. but it's not an actual number. Say if it's 500, it doesn't mean you've burnt 500. You could have burnt 700. You could have burnt 100. Mm-hmm. But like if, if you do similar activity every day, like you might go to the gym, you'll do some walking, uh, you might walk on, go on the elliptical. If it's consistent activities, then it's likely that the activity tracker will give a consistent sort of output. Mm-hmm. But no, that doesn't mean you, you eat it back because it just becomes a cycle of, okay, I'm going to do a little bit more on here and then eat that back. But the main reason is just not accurate. So yeah. it doesn't correlate a one-to-one ratio. Yeah. The only way I would look at those sorts of things or even just a step tracker or even just anecdotal or or just your own experience is let's say you normally during the week you do a session at the gym you do 8000 steps per day but on the weekend you did a leg session and you went for a hike with your family mm. like that's when i would be okay eat some more food on that day to because you've expended a crap load more energy yeah. But it, whether you use the activity or tracker or not, it's independent of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. And it just makes sense, you know, so like fueling for the work required. But at this, like in that case, doing a leg day and a hike on the same day, like obviously you've burnt more energy. So if you're trying to maintain weight or if you want to keep losing relatively the same amount of weight, whatever your goal is, just fill in that small little gap. But even that's going to be a guess, right? Like mm. let's say you walked an extra 10,000 steps or something. Okay, cool. Today, let's eat an extra 50 grams of carbs, 100 grams of carbs, whatever it might be. Um, it's a lot of carbs. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of carbs. Well, it depends how you volumize it. You can or it can't be a lot of carbs. <laughs> but the thing is, like, on MyFitnessPal, if anyone goes onto their MyFitnessPal, the very top banner, it's going to have your goal. Then it's going to have subtracting the food that you've eaten plus the exercise, right? And that's going to equal how much is remaining. So really just completely ignore that exercise component if it is linked in with your Fitbit or something, because it really, it guys, it, it probably is inaccurate. You know, these devices, right? They are very likely to overestimate the amount of calories that you're actually burning. Some people's Fitbits are like, you burnt three and a half thousand calories today. And you know that's probably not true, you know? Or even at the same time, it might actually substantially underestimate. Like, imagine that you were painting all day, right? And your Fitbit said, oh, you're painting all day, you only tracked 2,000 steps because you were standing up on a ladder, but like you were actually moving your arms with a brush or something like Mm. that. So you're still expending energy in that sense, but it's just not picking it up from your steps per se. Uh, So yeah, these trackers, it's just it's a it's a decent estimate at most but it really just is an estimate at the end of the day yeah i've 
as I said before, I think it's just a all right means of, let's say you want to do a certain amount of activity per day, just like I would get someone to maybe do a consistent amount of steps each day. Mm-hmm. It, it, it goes hand in hand with that, but nothing more for me. Mm-hmm. And like I, if a client doesn't already track it, then I'm, I never ask someone to, to use the tracking activity part of their Fitbit or whatever. Yeah. I'm wearing an activity tracker right now and I, I don't even I don't even look at the activity stuff on my fitness pal. Mm-hmm. I just the only thing I look at on macros is uh, on my fitness pal is macros <laughs> and occasionally like I'll go into and check fiber but that's that's it. Yeah. I've never even considered buying the premium aspect or No way. <laughs> I'm not that I'm not that OCD that like you know the goal and the total have to exactly line up down yeah. to the ground. I just look at the total, right? Mm-hmm. But I can understand people who like to have the goal and it it motivates them to try and hit mm. it. And, but yeah, we use our special sheets and stuff to set goals and targets and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So you can track all this data yourself, guys. And another reason why, again, the fitness trackers might actually be estimating that you are burning even more energy is because a lot of them these days actually track your heart rate variability. But then there's that question of how accurate is that, right? Mm. Like there's been days where I've been doing leg press and it says my heart rate's up in the 170s, like, I don't really know if that's true. I know my heart rate's definitely elevated and my sympathetic nervous system is definitely, you know, activated, but uh, I don't know if my heart rate's actually that high. So, and taking, depending, like seeing as though it takes off heart rate variability, it does calculations within the watch and the app to translate that into calories burnt. Also, it needs to take into account your body weight, right? But who, so a lot of people aren't consistent with actually entering in their body weight into these apps. Like, especially like, you know, I've definitely not done it for months. And then maybe like the last few months I've gained like nine kilograms or something, right? But if I still have the same body weight in my Fitbit from when I was in prep around 57 kilograms, now I'm like 67 kilograms, it's estimating a completely different number that's probably true. So take all these different things into account. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, guys. Well, that was the last listener question for today. But last thing we finished on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn this week? So I'm tossing up between two things and... I think I'll go with something that was on one of the more recent Revive Stronger podcasts and something that Eric said, like basically there's two sides of the, it was a round table. So there was two arguments, I guess, or two points of discussion. First one was like more Eric Helm sort of method of progression where it's like a more auto-regulated approach with deload. Um, The sets per week for volume is is pretty uh, fixed for for the training block versus like the RP strength approach, which is they basically increase sets throughout the training block. They're, they're more focused on increasing sets than increasing load. And they basically have a fairly fixed set, uh, number of weeks in a training block. So usually it might be like four to six. And I mean, personally, I think we can both say we're kind of more in aligned with what Eric mm-hmm. is talking about, like that more auto-regulated approach. Mm-hmm. And I really liked how he kind of put, this might just be my interpretation of what he said, but basically what RP, uh, the RP crew is doing is they're kind of forcing themselves into taking that deload at whether it be four or six weeks by increasing their volume. And I kind of like how he, how he put that in as opposed to just doing a fixed number of sets and making the most of that until you need to deload, whether it be eight weeks or or the same six weeks, mm-hmm. as opposed to 
increasing your fatigue to the point where you whether that you need to deload yeah and i that might have gone over a lot of people's heads because it was kind of like a specific point of the discussion but yeah that's what this segment's for about what i learned so yeah exactly no i love the way that you interpreted that and also like that was that was a pretty awesome discussion it was me it was mainly just a discussion they were just Mm. talking about a lot of different topics right it definitely with those round tables it's not like they're at each other's heads they're not necessarily fighting like yeah exactly (laughs) they're not like i know how to build muscle and you don't you're wrong right like it it's always interesting to just tune in Mm. Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's, they're, they're all great characters, so it's a lot of humor thrown in there. So I'd, I'd rec- anyone who's interested in like training volume and progression, it's definitely mm-hmm. worth a listen. There's two like 40-minute episodes, so it's quite long. But what did you learn? Well, I feel like I, I've known this for a while, but I was almost like reminded of it. And this actually has to do with Eric Helms as well. But uh, at night, Jack and I read on our Kindles. And right now I'm rereading his uh, Muscle and Strength Pyramid eBooks. And I was actually reading the nutrition one. And Eric actually made this really smart point of actually calculating protein intake for overweight individuals. Because we have to think about how protein intake, right, for the average person who's of a healthy body weight, we base we usually just base it off their total body weight, right? And then it takes into account their, you know, estimated skeletal muscle mass because protein, like the greatest store of bodily protein is in skeletal muscle. But if you have an overweight individual or someone who is obese, right? Let's say that you had someone who was 150 kilograms, right? Like, does that mean that they need and they require 300 grams of protein per day? Probably not. If you're basing it off two grams per kilogram of body weight, like we know that they have a lot of adipose tissue and adipose tissue doesn't have contractile proteins like skeletal muscle mass has. So you don't require the same amount of protein per kilogram of body weight if you are a very obese individual. So then it's like, well, how do I calculate, you know, or estimate how much protein does this person actually require, right? And I'm not gonna go get a DEXA scan and, you know, like pay for that necessarily just to estimate how much protein they require. So what you can actually do is actually base it off their height, which is actually a pretty good estimation. Uh, So for example, let's say that someone was like obese, but they were 175 centimeters tall. You would basically do one gram of protein per centimeter of height. So 175 grams of protein per day, which sounds like a pretty reasonable amount for someone who was, you know, quite overweight or obese. And that might even link in nicely with you. Like, let's say Jack, you're around 180 centimeters tall, right? And right now you are close to 90 kilograms. So that is close to two grams per kilogram of body weight. And of course you have a lot of lean mass on you, but let's say that you were, you know, very overweight or obese or something. Still, mm-hmm. you consuming 180 grams of protein per day based off your centimeters in height, that would be a that would be a reasonable amount. So yeah, that's just for any trainers out there, coaches, practitioners who might be working with a client who is quite overweight or obese. Potentially, if you're trying to work out daily protein requirements based off their height in centimeters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, for someone's usually you base protein off someone's more ideal weight, like mm. someone who is relatively lean, and for someone who is shorter, they're going to be lighter when they're mm-hmm. lean versus someone who is taller and lean like someone who's six foot three might be 90 kilos and be lean whereas someone Mm -hmm. who is like five foot five might be i don't know 
like 60 kilos or something. So it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Sneaky little tricks there, guys, for figuring out your macros. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, you can repost it onto your Instagram stories and leave a review on iTunes. Make sure to tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye, guys.